invite you today to take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 4 with me. New Testament letter of Colossians, a small letter <clears throat> tucked away in the New Testament, kind of the latter half of the New Testament. Chapter 4, verse 7. And to my surprise, today we will be finishing the letter of Colossians. It has been a year almost exactly since we started walking through Colossians. And um, it has blessed my soul. I hope it has been a blessing to you and encouraging to uh, walk through this letter for you. Um, I'm going to miss studying Colossians. It's been a, a joy um, each and every week to, to dive into these words and these phrases. Uh, it's a letter I think I will visit back often. Um, but anyways, we come to the final portion of it today, verse 7 through verse 18, the end of the letter in Colossians chapter 4. Paul has given the um, major main points of his letter already at this point, and he's wrapping it up. And uh, he includes a list of final instructions and includes a list of names here uh, at the end of Colossians. This list uh, he d often does this at the end of his letters, and this list in Colossians is the second longest uh, list of final instructions and names that he gives around, depending how you want to count it, eight to ten uh, references here. The longest is the end of Romans, which includes around 26 names. He follows a pretty standard formula uh, for ending his letters and ending normal Greek letters of his time. He's going rapid fire uh, through these verses highlighting just a few final principles and points. Uh, no connecting language. No um, kind of fiber running through that, that ties everything together. Just a few final important details that he wants these Colossian Christians to know uh, as he wraps up the letter. However, I do think there is a central theme that is important for us to glean from passages like this. Specifically this passage. And it is the value and the necessity of having fellow workers in Christ. It is a, a privilege, a value, a supreme treasure to have relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ who not only encourage you, strengthen you, sustain you, but who also help you accomplish your mission. In fact, it's a, I said, necessity for us to have fellow workers in Christ. Because you and I cannot actually accomplish our mission for Christ without each other. And to think that you can, even to think that you can exist in this life and in this world without the aid of your brothers and sisters in Christ is actually a rather prideful thought. God has, by His design, created us to need each other. That's actually in human DNA, isn't it? If we back up to the garden, the only thing that wasn't good in God's original creation was what? Adam's loneliness. And so he forms Eve out of Adam's rib so that he might have a helper and someone to interact with. That's because it's God's plan and God's good design that we have human social interaction. Eve wasn't given to Adam after the fall, but before the fall. And so in God's perfect design, human fellowship is good and necessary 
for flourishing and thriving and accomplishing our God-given task. For Adam and Eve, it was to tend the garden. And for you and I, it is to bear witness to Christ. And so, as much as we might like to be alone from time to time, we can, I think, rightly say that's a product of the, of the fall. In reality, we need each other. And especially as Christians, we need each other to accomplish our goal of glorifying Jesus. Indeed, Christians perhaps need each other the most. Because salvation doesn't take away our need for human interaction. Salvation heightens that need and clarifies that need and intensifies that need. In other words, I mean Christians recognize the gift of the church given to us by the grace of God. Christians recognize the gift of brothers and sisters in Christ who encourage us to stay in the truth and to stay the course and who aid us in accomplishing our purpose of witnessing to Christ and serving God. Indeed, that is what makes Christian community and Christian fellowship so wonderful. It helps us accomplish our supreme goal of bringing honor and glory to Jesus. So today, in a text like this, as Paul wraps up mentioning a couple of beloved brothers and sisters, we're reminded the value and the gift of Christian fellowship and Christian community. We're also reminded of the necessity of Christian community. You and I need each other's help. For without each other, we will not blossom in the faith. Without each other, we will not accomplish our calling or our purpose. Without Christian relationships, we flat out will not thrive in this life. We are called to love each other. And in loving each other, we are called to serve each other. And you know this by experience, don't you? That when you serve with a brother or sister in Christ, there are very few things in this life that bind your heart together in closer relationship. In fact, when people tell me that they don't have close relationships with those in the church, it is often because they're not serving in the church. They're not serving alongside brothers and sisters. God has designed it in some way that our mutual service together for the Lord binds us together so that we've heard it testified here before in our own church family, so that oftentimes we're closer with our church family than we are with our biological families. And I think that's what we find Paul highlighting today. My fellow workers encourage me and sustain me and strengthen me and they fill me with joy and they stir me to good works and they help me accomplish my purpose. In fact, as we walk through these few verses to end the letter, we find Paul speaking very, very affectionately of those who serve alongside him. He does that because he knows their gift. He does that because he knows he needs them. That they are, when it comes down to it, indispensable for his calling to be fulfilled. Some of the people in this list, in fact, all but one, we will find mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. And not all of them in the road with Paul on a good note. It's the truth of human complexity and the complex nature of human relationships. We don't always get along. In fact, there's going to be one individual mentioned in this passage 
whom Paul's already had a run-in with. And yet even in all the disagreements and all the conflict, he writes about these people to the Colossian Christians and says, they are of immense value to me. So I hope as we walk through this section of the letter and wrap it up, we will feel and begin to feel the same way about each other. We'll come to realize that we should be serving together. And that in serving for, with each other, we care for each other. And that in caring for each other, we have a joy. I hope you realize today that you have a part to play in my ministry. And I have a part to play in your ministry. That we all have a part to play in the kingdom of God and that part benefits the whole church. That none of us are isolated in our tasks. Though we are given individual callings and individually responsible, we are in desperate need of each other. And when we commit to each other in the highest of regards, we bless each other and are therefore in turn blessed ourselves. Let's look now Colossians chapter 4 verse 7. Let's read through this rapid fire list. And then I've attempted to break apart the passage in ways that we might view it and understand it and we'll come back and walk through it. Colossians chapter 4 verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. As we talk about fellow workers, we start in verses 7, 8, and 9, looking at their work. Two men are mentioned here in verses 7, 8, and 9. Both of them are described as beloved. Tychicus and Onesimus. One has a very formal role and responsibility. And the other one has a less formal role. Yet both are dear and important to Paul. We start with Tychicus. Who is identified in three ways. As in verse 7, a beloved brother. 
a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. That threefold combination we find nowhere else in the New Testament. It's reserved exclusively for Tychicus, and it's rather profound and respectful and meaningful. He first calls him a beloved brother. It's a very personal term, personal phrase. He wants these Colossian Christians to know that I trust Tychicus. He's dear to me. He's beloved of me. I'm committed to him. I have a love for him. He's also described as a faithful minister so that these Colossian Christians might know his character. He's faithful in executing his work. He's qualified. He's trustworthy to you. He's sound in his practices and in his teaching and in his beliefs. And he is a fellow servant in the Lord. There's his authority. And there's his purpose. And if that's all that's written of him, that's enough to say he should be accepted among you. He is a fellow servant in the Lord. He represents the will and teaching and agenda of our Lord Jesus. Paul begins in verse 8 to highlight his important and formal role. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. He's an ambassador of mine, a representative of mine to you. I cannot be there. So Tychicus is an extension of my heart to you. And here's the twofold purpose for which I've sent him. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That's originally how he has introduced Tychicus in verse 7. He's going to tell you all about my activities. Verse 8, he repeats that. He's going to tell you how we are. In other words, he's going to report the details to you of my situation. At this point in time, Paul's writing from prison in Rome. And Tychicus is going to tell you how I'm doing. How I'm holding up. He's going to report to you how my prison is going Imprisonment is going in the details of that imprisonment and, and the trials and the, the sentencing and, and how my ministry is going and how my relationships with the brothers and sisters in Rome is going. He's going to report all these personal details, which tells us something. Paul is concerned, though he's never met these Colossian Christians. We learn that from chapter two, verse one, though he's never met them, nor them him. He's concerned that they know him personally. It's important that we know the details about brothers and sisters all over the world. That we try to understand what they're going through. That we pray for them. That we care about their situation. We have many brothers and sisters right now in this world in the year 2020, who are experiencing the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul experienced. Imprisonment for believing in Christ. And Paul sends Tychicus and he says, I want him to just tell you how my situation's going so that you'll know. Because you should care. Church, there are brothers and sisters around the world who believe in Christ just like us, whom we do not know. And yet we should care. We should care about them. We should care about their situation. Much more formally, Paul says, I've sent him to you so that he may encourage your hearts. And it's 
interesting, isn't it, that Paul makes a distinction here between informing them of his situation and encouraging them. He draws a distinction between the two. And the reason is because Tychicus likely carries some form of authority to speak to the church on Paul's behalf. That encourage them likely means encourage you with the content of this letter, which is to avoid false teaching and hold fast to Christ. Tychicus will encourage your hearts. He'll read the letter to you. He'll instruct you from the letter. He'll explain the letter to you. He'll fill in the gaps. He'll answer your questions. He'll make sure you understand the truth. You see, Tychicus is fulfilling Paul's ministry to this church. Paul cares about them. Paul's concerned about their faithfulness to Christ. Paul's concerned about their spiritual well-being as the whole letter indicates that they don't follow false teaching. And so he sends someone he calls beloved and faithful and fellow servant that he might instruct them to stay the course. With him, he sent in verse 9 a man named Onesimus who is also described as a faithful and beloved brother but in a different way. Onesimus has a less formal role. He is not described as a servant or a minister. And in contrast to Tychicus, Onesimus' description is condensed. Faithful and beloved brother. Which is meant to convey to the Colossian Christians that his credentials aren't necessarily as important. Because he's not going to be teaching you and informing you. He's just going to, verse 9, merely correspond to the account given from Tychicus. However, Paul does add this one further description. He is one of you. Which has two purposes to it. Not only is he from your region, originally from your same city, the same area, but according to Philemon verse 16, which is about this man, Onesimus, he's now a Christian. And in a much more weightier sense, Paul writes and says, I'm sending him to you, though he's beloved to me. I'm sending him to you as one of you, as a brother in Christ now. Warmly embrace him. He's important, as important as this letter. And Tychicus is bringing the letter, and Tychicus is bringing Onesimus. So that you might receive him and they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. These two men, they have different purposes. They're different in stature, different in responsibility. And yet nonetheless, very important to Paul. As brothers and as fellow workers, they're reporting and encouraging and informing And Paul can't carry out his ministry of the gospel without them. We start off in the closing portion of this letter seeing the necessity of fellow workers in Christ. We need each other from time to time to accomplish our calling, to accomplish our task. To instruct the church, to care about the health of the church, to to send forth representatives to speak on our behalf, 
to be an extension of our own heart, our own care to each other. That's what we do when we commission missionaries. We send them to other parts of the world as extensions of ourselves to take the gospel to Russia, Iran, Denver, other places. We need fellow workers. We need fellow workers to help us accomplish our calling as they accomplish their calling. Number two, we see the commitment of fellow workers in verses 10 and 11. Paul quickly shifts gears here to three different individuals. He describes them at the end of verse 11 as those who are of the circumcision. And he's not talking about their religion. He's talking about their ethnicity. They're Jewish by nationality. He mentions in verse 10, Aristarchus whom we find in other places in the Scriptures, particularly Acts chapter 19, verse 29. He describes him here in verse 10 as my fellow prisoner who greets you. Maybe he was in prison with Paul in Rome. Uh, we don't know. Maybe he's in prison with Paul in Rome voluntarily or, or guilty by association. But in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, he was imprisoned for being a Christian. That's the chapter that records the riot in Ephesus. In our Aristarchus was one of the guys arrested in the middle of that riot. He is one who has, like Paul, been imprisoned for Christ. Then we come across a man that is referenced quite often in the New Testament in verse 10. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Mark here is John Mark. He's identified as the cousin of Barnabas because likely Barnabas has more weight, is, is more well known in this region. And Paul reinforces previous instructions given to this church. If he comes to you, welcome him. It's a, a small glimpse and a small testimony to the healing nature of the gospel in our relationships. If you know anything about John Mark, you know that in Acts chapter 15, he abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And then following up that, Paul and Barnabas split up over a disagreement over John Mark. What to do with him in regards to missionary work. And yet, John Mark eventually writes the most foundational gospel that bears his name, Mark. And now, by this point, Paul's writing and saying, welcome him as a brother. There's been a, a reconciliation that's taken place. And then the third individual in verse 11 is the only individual in this list that is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, all we know of him is what we know from verse 11. His name is Jesus, which was a common Jewish name up until the second century. And his Greek name is Justice. And all we know is what's described of these three men. They are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. They're displaying a certain kind of commitment that nobody else from their background, nobody else in their circles, nobody else uh, in their sphere of influence is, is exercising with them. There are Jews in Rome at this time. But it's only these three who are showing a unique level of commitment of dedication, first to Christ and then by extension to Paul. 
And Paul highlights their exemplary commitment to two specific things. First, the kingdom of God. And two, to comfort Paul. They are committed to the kingdom of God. Let me just add, there are few higher honors in this life than to be called a worker of the kingdom of God. Few things trump that description. It means you are carrying out the agenda of the king. It means you are working and speaking and moving and interacting on his behalf. It means you are, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, an ambassador for Christ, God making His appeal through us. To be described as a worker of the kingdom of God is a high honor. And by the way, it's true of all of us. We should live like fellow workers of the kingdom. Even when we're the only ones committed to the cause. Faithful, obedient, Joyfully received fellow workers are men and women committed to furthering the agenda of God and His kingdom. As you and I are called to be fellow workers, that's where our commitment first and foremost lies. But then on top of that, Paul says they've been a comfort to me. You see how much that must mean to the apostle who's in prison. Who has his liberties and his freedoms removed from him for a time. Who has much work to be doing. In fact, Tychicus not only carries the letter uh, to the Colossian Christians, he also carries a letter to the Ephesian Christians. He also carries a letter to Laodicea, referenced in verse 16. He also carries the letter to Philemon. Paul has a lot to write about, a lot of ministry to do. And all those burdens on his heart and all those burdens on his mind, here are three men who have committed to the kingdom of God and who have committed to be a comfort to him. And isn't it a joy when you have brothers and sisters that you can say the same thing about? That in the hard times, chaotic times, the confusing times, they are committed to comforting me. They care for me. They care about my well-being. They display the love and care of Christ to me in a flesh and bone kind of way. We need committed fellow workers who are committed to the cause of Christ and to the care of each other. This is what the Christian relationship is supposed to be. That even when everyone else doesn't share that same conviction, when my own family members or my own co-workers or my own neighbors don't share that conviction, I'm at least going to be committed to the care of my brothers and sisters. I'm at least going to be committed to the agenda of Christ and the cause of Christ and the advancement of the kingdom. That's the description that Paul gives about these three men. They are the only ones and yet they're committed to the cause of Christ and they are committed to my well-being. Such relationships and such commitments, they not only display the grace of God 
and the power of the gospel to transform our lives. But they are often what God uses to sustain us and strengthen us in a life and in a world that quite frankly hurts more often than it blesses. We need these kind of people. We need to be these kind of people. Thirdly, Paul highlights the care that fellow workers should have, the care that his fellow workers have, and specifically, it's a care for the church. He makes another rapid change in verse 12 with no connecting language, but he goes from Jewish brethren in 10 and 11 to now 12, 13, and 14 talking about Gentile or Greek brothers. Which tells us that they're all laboring together. There's a display of unity in this passage to a certain degree. And he turns to a man in verse 12 whom we've already met in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Epaphras. Epaphras is the one who planted this church. Epaphras is likely the one who planted the church in Laodicea and in Heropolis, this whole region. Epaphras is likely the first one to take the gospel to this place. And Paul gives him the lengthiest mention in this whole closing section. Verse 12 and verse 13. Like Onesimus, he's described as one of you. Sure, he's from the same region. Like we might say, Someone's an Oklahoman. They're from our state. But much more weighty, just like with Onesimus, Epaphras is one of you. He's a brother in Christ. Much more important, he's in the family of God. And he's a servant of Christ Jesus with the authority and the stature that that brings with it. And look what Paul says of him. He greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Struggling, laboring for people that he loves. In fact, in verse 13, Paul says, I, I personally bear him witness. He's worked hard for you. And that phrase worked hard means heavy toil that comes with pain. Epaphras is a man who so loves these Christians that he will be in anguish for them. He will labor on their behalf. He will struggle before God on their behalf. That's the emphasis on your behalf or for you. He pleads with God for your well-being. He's a man who cares about you spiritually. No doubt, Epaphras knows the threat of false teaching plaguing this church and the church at Laodicea. And what does he do? Does he sit idly by? Does he just take the message and report it to Paul? No, he labors for them. And notice what he prays for. Two things. That they may stand mature and then fully assured in the will of God. Stand mature that they may grow in their knowledge of and obedience to and experience of God. That's a pastor's heart. His great desire for them 
is that they would continue to grow up and grow up and grow up into the glories and joys and treasures of knowing God. And that they would also be fully, fully, completely, comprehensively assured in the will of God, in His purpose for them, direction for them, instruction for them. That they would remember that Christ alone has saved them. That by continuing in, or, or being born again in the Spirit, we don't continue in the flesh, we continue in the Spirit. Paul wants them to know God's eternal desire for them. Or Epaphras prays. And Paul wants them to know that he's praying for, for them to know God's eternal purpose for them. And so he says, I bear him witness. He has labored hard for you. And not just for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Heropolis. Because Epaphras is a man who cares about the people of God. And notice, he doesn't just love them when he's with them. But even when absent, he labors for you. He prays for you. He struggles for you. He's not just a for-show kind of guy. His love for you extends even when He's gone. Even when He's afar. Even when He's not present. His heart beats for your well-being. We need men and women like Epaphras. This is what it means to be fellow workers together. To love each other. Show a care for each other when present and when absent. And then finally in verse 14, he mentions two other people. One who we are very familiar with. Luke, the beloved physician. And Demas, who Paul will write to, write about to, to Timothy and tell him that Demas has deserted because he loved this world too much. But these two men, likely like Paul, have never met these Colossian Christians. And yet I say they show a degree of care and concern and love for them because they greet them. I've never met you. I don't know you. You don't know me. We know each other in name only. But we send our greetings to you. We hope you're doing well. We hope you're walking in, in Christ and in the truth. It's a small expression and yet it's one of genuine care for brothers and sisters no matter where they are. Such a list like this, such names like this, such encounters and circumstances like this should at the very least show us the importance and the kind of affection that we are to have for the people of God no matter who they are or where they are. In our church or in another church. We care for the people of God. And so Paul writes in 12, 13, and 14, and he says in a small expression and also in Epaphras' profound expression, I want you to know you're loved. You're cared for. And you're cared for from afar by people who know you and people who don't know you. They're standing in the gap for you. They desire your well-being. They're praying to God for you. Fellow workers care for the people of God.
Now, finally, in verses 15 through 18, we find that fellow workers share a mutual need. Leaders are not exempt from having their own needs. Contrary to popular opinion, we're not perfect. We have our flaws. We have our shortcomings. In fact, we're often in desperate need. He writes in verse 15. And he changes now from giving greetings to now instructing greetings. He says, give greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. It's interesting, he doesn't mention the church in Heropolis, though they all are in close proximity. And it's interesting that he tells this church to give his greetings to Laodicea because in verse 16, he's acknowledging, I've already sent a letter to Laodicea, which no doubt has its own greetings and instructions in it. So why not include Heropolis and why instruct them to go to Laodicea and give their greetings to the church? Well, two reasons. I don't think the false teaching had crept into Heropolis yet, just in Colossae and Laodicea. And two, although he sent a letter to Laodicea, and in verse 16 instructs them to share letters, I think in verse 15 with the instruction to give greetings, he's simply encouraging interaction between Christians. Because Christians must interact if we're going to encourage each other to stay in the truth. When false teaching comes down and threatens the people of God, when sin encroaches your life or my life, when our souls are spiritually dry or we are in a spiritual rut, the answer is not to seclude ourselves and fix ourselves. The answer is to run to the fellowship of the saints. To encourage one another and love each other and care for each other and interact with each other. Paul wants the Christians in Laodicea and in Colossae to get together and be mutual encouragement to each other because all fellow workers have the same mutual need to be encouraged to stay the course and persevere. It doesn't matter how mature you think you are in Christ. Or how much you think you got together. Or how much you know of the scriptures. Or how many theological words you can sputter off at any given moment. You still need the fellowship of the saints to stay the course. Finally, not finally, almost finally. Verse 17, he talks about an individual, Archippus. And he gives instructions to the church to encourage and exhort Archippus, in some sense, to hold him accountable. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. The Lord has called you to something, Archippus. See that you maintain that calling. From that verse alone, there are many others to correspond with it, but from that verse alone, we see that the church does have a right to speak into an individual's life. And in fact, the church should care 
about individual lives, right? We care about our obedience to the Lord. Well, finally, real quick, verse 18, Paul writes with his own hand. I write this greeting with my own hand, he says. That's, that's personal. That's because I love you. I want you to see I'm signing off on this and I'm writing to you. And then he says, expressing his own need, remember my chains. Here's the great apostle. So bold and so courageous and so faithful to even go to jail for Christ. And he essentially writes and says, I need you. Especially in suffering, I need you. I need you to remember me. I need you to pray for me. I need you to know my details, so I'm sending Tychicus to you. I need you to know what's going on, that you can lift me to the Lord. Then he expresses his desire, grace be with you. The same way that he opened the letter in chapter 1, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you. Chapter 4, verse 18, grace be with you. He's a man who longs for God's grace to be all over them. Fellow workers have a mutual need. We need each other to encourage each other to stay the course, to interact, to be with each other, to remember each other. I think from passages like this, we come to the conclusion or should or can come to the conclusion that fellow workers in the gospel are not just a blessing, but a necessity. That You and I cannot exist alone. Nor accomplish our calling or our ministry alone. We need each other. And we need each other in very committed sorts of ways to labor together for the glory of Christ. We need each other in unwavering ways. In regularly voiced and in bold, committed kind of ways. We need to know that we have each other's backs. That we will labor together side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. We need to know that we're not alone in glorifying Christ. Fellow workers are a gift from God and a necessity to be obedient to God. You need to ask the question now. We all must ask the question. What must I do to be a fellow worker? To join the work to commit to my brothers and sisters? How might I better care for the church? How might I express and meet the mutual needs of each other? What would make me a better fellow worker for the gospel? To bless my brothers and sisters. For some of you, it's salvation. You can't be a fellow worker because you're not saved. The only thing that binds us together is Jesus. That's it. And that binding is greater than all of our disagreements or differences. It transcends everything. In fact, there are some of us who would have nothing else in common if it were not for Christ. But that is enough to bind us together in ways the world would never understand. The only reason we care for each other in such a way is because Christ 
is our binding agent. Salvation ties us together eternally. Maybe to be a fellow worker, you need to realize first, I need to be saved. I need to confess my sins to God and repent and ask for forgiveness and mercy and trust in His saving offer. Others of us, we simply need to pause and ask practical questions and repent and open up to others and step out on a limb and sacrifice and say, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to build relationships and and I'm going to serve and I'm going to ask how I can serve and find ways to serve and find ways to plug in to be a fellow worker that blesses my brothers and sisters and helps accomplish the calling of God. Those are the lessons we should learn. Those are the lessons we should begin to apply. Father, I thank You for this Word of Yours. I thank You that it instructs us how to be together, how to live together, how to live with each other and interact with each other and and what to do with each other. It reminds us of what's most important. I pray, God, we would be able to write a list much similar to Paul's to write of each other's care, to write of each other's aid and help, to write that they that each other are committed to the kingdom and committed to each other's comfort. Help us, God, build these sorts of relationships so that you may get the glory, so that we might flourish and blossom and thrive in our relationship with each other. I thank you for this letter. This letter has been a blessing unlike almost any other blessing in my life. It has ushered me to your son, showed me the importance and the glory of Jesus, set my heart and my mind upon him. And I pray it would have a lasting influence and effect upon us. We praise you and thank you for letting us walk verse by verse and word by word through the scriptures. That is a blessing that ought not be lost on us. May it all culminate in a greater faithfulness to you. A greater life lived for you. And a greater relationship with each other. For your glory, Jesus, we pray. Amen.